cases should be tried on the merits. You know, we get all the facts in front of everyone, and then, you know, we argue the law and the principles on it, but it's not about hiding the facts. It's about how we interpret those facts. When you're investigating the cause of the injury or death, it can be really hard to get access to all the information you need. You can use one or two 30B6 depositions to cut through a year of nonsense. It's a very powerful and efficient way to get to information, to commit an institution to a position that you know what they're gonna say and they're not gonna try to sandbag you at trial. Mark Kosieretsky is a nationally acclaimed lawyer specializing in nursing home abuse and neglect cases. He's pioneered new ways to hold companies accountable through his use of federal rules, civil procedure, 30B6, and his writing and teaching on the topic has garnered him a national reputation among prosecutors. Mark and I got together to chat about what makes nursing home cases unique, as well as all things 30B6. You're listening to the Personal Injury Marketing Mastermind, the show where elite personal injury attorneys and leading edge marketers give you exclusive access to grow strategies for your firm. I'm your host, Chris Dreyer, founder and CEO of Rankings.io. We help elite personal injury attorneys dominate first page rankings with search engine optimization. Being at the forefront of marketing is all about understanding people. So let's get to know our guest. Here's Mark Kosieretsky, co-founder and president at Kosieretsky Smith Law Firm. I've been a lawyer for 42 years. Uh, when I started, I worked for a big general practice firm that, you know, did everything from dog bites and car wrecks to civil rights actions. And it was a great firm, but after 17 years, I kind of wanted to be my own guy. So I started my own law firm. I just took off one day because I'm going to do it my own way. And in that process, I, you know, I was taking anything that came in the door. And I got this call on a nursing home case. And, because, and everyone was saying, well, nobody takes those because, you know, the death of a 90-year-old who has a three-year life expectancy is, you know, you can't afford to handle that case. So I didn't take it. And then another one came around. And then a third one. I'm just thinking that this just isn't right. Something doesn't feel right that this really bad stuff is happening to people. So... I decided, well, you know, let's see if we can try to hold wrongdoers accountable on this. And as I started digging into it, I realized it wasn't so much about what happened, but why it happened. Like, you know, they taught us in Watergate many, many years ago, follow the money. And I started doing that. I found that we have a whole industry that's killing mama for money. And once we started uncovering that, then, you know, the cases not only became economically feasible, but they became about what, you know, what was really happening, that people were laundering money or channeling money through these institutions, cutting staff, cutting materials, cutting quality, and people were getting harmed and killed. And so I handled that case once I understood that theory, and it was pretty successful. So more people started calling me. And the next thing I know, I'm the national chair of the nursing home group. And, you know, now I get 600 calls a year about it. That's fantastic. You know, so many times you hear individuals, they, 
like you, they're, they're taking every case you can to get revenue when you start a new business and you find this kind of blue ocean, right? Where it's not as competitive, individuals aren't taking these cases and you can really throw your hat in the ring, get that, uh, that credibility from being a niche expert. You know, I got to say too, when you were talking about, you know, the, the neglect side, I was immediately thinking, hey, is it, it's, it's mostly got to be understaffing. And, you know, I hear about these bed sore cases and I'd imagine, have you seen an increase from the COVID situation where there wasn't their family members checking on them? Do you, have you seen like an increase in the ne- neglect type of cases? Well, you're spot on on that. Uh, when COVID came around and they shut the doors, not only to family members, but to state investigators. So all of a sudden, we have a lot of places that doesn't have anybody checking up on them. And what happens is, you know, we can take the money and not provide the service. And we saw a real uptick in calls of not, you know, just people getting COVID. I mean, COVID, you know, that, that's a pretty complicated cause and effect type of deal. But you're spot on on the failure and the neglect that um, happened when there's nobody, nobody minding the shop. Yeah, it's really, really unfortunate. You know, the other thing that I hear and I've read is, is, you know, some attorneys might think that because these victims are seniors, that juries are less likely to award a a big verdict. Is that just a myth? You know, what would you say to attorneys who are tentative to take on these types of cases? Well, one of the things I've been teaching at the National College of Advocacy for decades is, you know, damages aren't necessarily about damages. Why something happened is what will motivate the jurors to follow the law. Because a lot of times the jurors will say, well, you know, stuff happens. It was an accident. And as a result, we're told that we have to uh, allow some, some damages, but it's, you know, not that big a deal. On the other hand, if they see that it's about bad conduct, about money laundering, about cutting staff, about making the workers victims, the most conservative jurors are often the ones who are most outraged by that. And once they're outraged, they'll follow the law. And the law says, you know, what are the damages? You know, what is the harm that occurred? And they're not gonna water it down because they just say stuff happens. And so I think it is a myth that a nursing home case that is a function of mama dying for money is going to be 10 or 100 times bigger than the identical situation of mama dying in a rear end collision. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense when you explain it like that. The other question that that I had, and and I know you kind of alluded to it, maybe the full answer, but but I've got to dig in here a little bit is, you know, I imagine that that many of the people that contact you are, are not the victims themselves, right? They're their loved ones. It's it's a much broader demographic or, you know, what's, what's some of your recommendations in terms of a marketing strategy to make sure you're reaching the actual right people? Well, the, the right people are, are the loved ones of either the dementia patient who's been sexually abused, but really doesn't have the ability to express, express it or a victim of a wrongful death. Um, I think what we find at least from you know the philosophy of my firm, is we're there to help people get through 
a really, really tough time. Possibly the toughest thing they've ever gone through. That, you know, mom or dad who raised them and molded them to be who they are is all of a sudden being abused. And it's really upsetting. And most of the people who come to us, you know, they, they, they want to find out what happened. And they feel like they have to do something just in response to this terrible thing that happened to their parents so it wouldn't happen to anybody again. So this is not an area for people who want to just churn and burn and make money because the people who, um, who are the clients really have a huge emotional stake in this. And in a very large percentage of the time, it's not about the money, it's about the principle for them. And so if you're trying to reach people, then you have to know where they're coming from. And it takes compassion. It takes understanding and knowing where they're coming from. And for those of us who've lost our parents, you know what that process is like. And even when you see it coming, it's hard. So all of a sudden you get this surprise call that mama's, you know, fell out of a window and they're saying, well, what was she doing next to an open window? I mean, you wouldn't do that in a daycare center or, you know, mama was um, found with someone sexually assaulting her. I mean, these are things that, you know, create nightmares for their children. And we're, we're there to help them hold wrongdoers accountable and to make sure that we find out what happened and, to, and hopefully do things to prevent it from ever happening again. In terms of motivation, I imagine, geez, that when I, you're hearing some of those, some of the things that you've mentioned, I can't help but imagine like what would happen if something happened like that to my mom? Oh, geez, it just, all these emotions go through your mind. I'm focusing in on what you're saying. The other thing I was thinking is, you know, a lot of law firms, they'll use a third party intake company, a, or a live chat. And one of the things I've seen with those is just a lack of emotional intelligence in terms of like EQ. So, you know, when individuals are contacting you, I imagine that, that your staff just have to be supremely trained in that and just have that skill of emotional intelligence. Yeah, this isn't about data transfer. This is about human connection. Um, we have one woman who literally is a saint and she listens to people every day and talks to them and hears them out to understand you know, what their needs are. It's really kind of cool. I just got an email from someone that we turned down and we turned down 95% of the cases, 96. And she wrote this email and says, thank you for taking so much time to listen to us, to guide us, to let us know what the options are. And, you know, Annie was spectacular. She, um, she just is all about love and compassion. And it's reflective of who you are as a law firm. And, well, I want to thank you. You didn't take the case, but I want to thank you for hearing us. And we get so many calls from referrals of people who we turn down. 
but we don't have the chat. We don't even have the automated, well, we have an automated phone answering service, but the way it works is if it doesn't go to the person who answers the phone within two rings, it rolls to someone else. And within six rings, you will always get a human being in our firm. Wow. So we're, we're kind of old school. I like that. I like that. Well, and, and and also due to niching, right? You have, you know, it's not this volume where you're trying to get 10,000 auto accidents, right? And um, I've done that. That was how I started my career. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Uh, and th- there's a place for that, but it's a red ocean there, though. I mean, it's, it's, I will uh, tell you, when I first started practicing law, it was, you know, 40 years ago, 40 plus years ago. And my job was to take every, um, piece of dog dropping case that the senior partners couldn't get settled and I'd have to go try it. So I've got more wow. jury trials than most law firms have because we were just cranking them. And I'm not going to say that was necessarily the best legal work that I've done in my life, but boy, did I learn how to do it. I learned how to think on my feet and I learned how to win big and how to lose big. I learned how to lose cases that I never thought were possible to lose. And I learned how to to win cases that were impossible to win. So there is a niche for it. And certainly I think that the people who handle those cases and I did it for 17, 20 years, it helps mold conduct because you very seldom hear someone say, I better stop drinking because I might kill someone or I might run into something. But you'll hear people saying, I better stop drinking and driving because I might get sued. So that's what changes conduct. And so there is a real role for holding wrongdoers accountable because if you hold wrongdoers accountable, other wrongdoers are just like, I better be careful because I might get sued. So I've been there, I've done that. I've tried so many of those and I, and I feel really good about the accountability that we've helped instill, perhaps with terror, but it doesn't matter that they're instilled. And now we're doing it on a kind of a much more challenging scale in the healthcare industry, assisted living, medical malpractice, nursing home, assisted living, where there's the layers of corporate hiding is pretty stunning. I mean, I had a case once that we had 170 subsidiaries running one nursing home. Wow. We even had one where there was a Ponzi scheme where the corporation sold ownership shares in every bed in the nursing home. It was absolutely crazy. You know, the other question I had, and I was going to have, you know, one final question before we jump over to 30B6. I'd love to dive in about that is I looked up the stat today. There are over 46 million adults over 65 in the U.S. today, and that number is expected to grow to 90 million by 2050. You know, how do you think these this increased <coughs> numbers will affect elder care and elder abuse these types of situations in the future? Well, what I find is wherever there's money to be made, you will find people out there trying to make the money. And some people are really scrupulous and they're all about a great product. And others are about churning the money. And if you've got lots and lots and lots of elders and you've got the government paying for it, it's going to be like government contractors. There's going to be people trying to get licenses all over the place. And what we've been finding is assisted livings are like nursing home light. And in many, many states, they're unregulated. And as a result, you know, they create these really beautiful places 
And and a lot of them are just terrifying places because the care is not given, but it looks pretty. And and it's not that's not insurance; it's cash based. So people are going to be spending six, eight, nine thousand dollars a month to live in this kind of nice apartment where they think it's safe. And a lot of times it's not. Yeah, that's really scary and and unfortunate. And as a non-attorney listening or or just an individual is thinking about using one of these facilities, it's like, you know, do your due diligence and and ask around the experts of who gives the best care. For anyone unfamiliar with Federal Rule or Civil Procedure 30B6, it may seem a bit of an enigma. I asked Mark if he could describe the rule and why it's so important. 30B6 is a federal rule. Every state has a corollary of it, the state rules. And what it is, is it's a process, it's a rule that allows um, a lawyer to ask an institution questions as an institution as opposed to the individuals because it it could be a corporation it could be a government it could be a partnership that's a conglomerate of dozens hundreds sometimes thousands sometimes a million people who have information and i know you're going to find this really hard to believe and some of your listeners will be too but corporations and the government are not always forthright with the information they want to share. And this rule was developed and nobody really did anything with it for decades. But it, it, but it was philosophical and it's saying, rather than saying, I want to talk to the president of the corporation or I want to talk to the product manager or the, or the head nurse and say, I want to learn what the corporation knows about these areas. And he identified the subject matter. And then it's the organization's job to gather up all the information and answer your questions. And some lawyers will say that's a lot of work. And say, well, it's not as much work as having to take the testimony of dozens of people and disrupting the business. So it is an efficient way of getting institutional knowledge. And I wrote the book on it. <laughs> you know? I, 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 it seems like, you know, more outcome driven. You find the who, right? Who's going to answer it? But I had a question from the outside. Would this allow them time to coach up that individual to maybe stray away from the correct information? Or is it better because you actually get to the person that has the information? Well, it's not necessarily just one person. They're going to get coached up. I mean, my job is to ask the questions in a way that it doesn't matter. And it's not necessarily any given person. Their job is to create the witness to tell us what what these facts are. What happened in this operating room? What was the design process? Why did this construction company not put together a demolition plan? What are you claiming are the rules? Through that, we can um, 
craft questions first in this notice that we send out saying, these are the things we want you to be fully prepared to talk about. You kind of gave me a and few examples, but maybe you can walk me through, I don't know if you can share like an actual example of where them. you've used because this. Because people lie all the time, all the time. Well, I mean, I can do it on all kinds of different levels. Probably should give you two examples just so we can sure. go. The first one is how do you take a routine case where someone fell down the stairs at a fishing resort and they get a very, very serious injury? You want to get the information necessary for the elements of your case, like who built the staircase? Did it follow the codes? What are the expected uses of that staircase? Uh, was this an open and obvious danger? Did the customer do anything wrong? And you literally say, I want this corporation to provide to me uh, one or more persons to provide all information known or available to the corporation about who built this staircase. What were the code questions that you were using, codes that you were using? What are the expected uses of this property? What kind of customers use it? You know, broad questions like that, but that just goes right to the heart of it. And, you know, if, if you ask for the manager or the owner, they say, well, I can't remember who built it or I can't remember when it was built or, you know, we got all kinds of different customers. Well, now they say, you gotta, you gotta take a stand. You have to take a stand on this because lawyers, unfortunately, have kind of followed our sports world where they think it's win at all costs. And it's not about playing by the rules. It's about seeing what you can get away with. And lawyers on both sides of the equation do that. And I'm, I'm you know, I'm pretty opposed to that. I think my dad taught me when I was a young man in sports is, is if you, if you win by cheating, you didn't win. And so I, I look for ways to zero in on it. So a second example, that was one, how you take a routine case. And another example would be if you want to, to get contents of a computer or a, of paper files. And, you, and the rules say all you got to do is ask for it and they're supposed to give it to you. But they give you all kinds of this. Oh, we don't know. We don't know what you mean by personnel file or it's too hard to find. It's going to be overburdensome. And it's vague and it doesn't have anything to do with anything. And so I'll use the 30B6 to the corporation saying, here are six categories of documents I'm interested in. And I'd like to know what, what documents or electronic information falls within the category of this title. And where is it kept and how is it organized? If a court told you you had to go find it, how would you go about looking for it? And a perfect example was I asked for the personnel file. I said, what's in the personnel file? They list all this stuff. I said, well, what about the discipline records? Oh, that's not the personnel file. That's a different file. That And then as we talked about it, this is back in the paper file, they would have an HR file 
And then they'd have a health file in it, a discipline file, a background check file. And so they just redefine it. Or they say, I, I'd ask for data about nursing homes and what is the census, how many people you have in the building. And the lawyers would say, well, I don't know what you mean by census. And, you know, God, that'd be too hard for us to calculate. So I asked them in this area, do you keep census? Yeah. You know what census means? Yeah. So well, tell us what it means. Well, it means how many people we have in the building. Do you keep track of it? Well, sure. In what? Well, we have a computerized report that we generate twice a day about it. How hard is it to get it? Three keystrokes. Can you print it? Well, sure. How hard is that? Click print with the mouse button. But they already said it's vague, overburdensome. We don't know what you're talking about. It'd be too much work to get it. So this is a way to bypass the intermediary lawyer who's trying to prevent you from getting the information. Because if we follow the rules, it really should be, and everybody who's a lawyer who you know is in your audience is gonna know about Hickman versus Taylor. It's back in the forties, the Supreme Court says, cases should be tried on the merits. You know, we get all the facts in front of everyone, and then, you know, we argue the law and the principles on it, but it's not about hiding the facts. It's about how we interpret those facts. But that seems to have been lost in a very big part of the current generation or multiple generations of lawyers. And I was, I was thinking, you know, you just want to scream semantics, right? <laughs> when they're saying yeah. the double tap. It's nonsense is what it is. Right, right. You know, I had a I had a follow up question here, and this I'm not sure if you've done a study related to this, but from a, a, just a revenue standpoint, and and I'm kind of echoing Jay Abraham here, where you know the ways to generate revenue is you you get more leads, you extend the value of a case, but also it's you you increase your frequency, so you're settling cost cases more quickly. So have you done a study to see? you know, how the application of 30B6 is applied to closing a case more quickly because you're not running around in circles trying to find the right person. And um, have you found that it really makes an impact in terms of frequency? Well, it makes an impact on multiple levels. The first one is what you're talking about. You can use one or two 30B6 depositions to cut through a year of nonsense of looking for someone. You have to know what you're doing. I mean, it's the, it's a skill set. I mean, you just can't just pick it up and do it. Right. I mean, my book is need to read your book. pages and 900 footnotes. You know, it's mm -hmm. um, but it's a very powerful and efficient way to get to information and to, to commit an institution to a position that you know what they're going to say and they're not going to try to sandbag you at trial. But another thing that I would encourage everyone to think about is th there's one school of thought that the, def the defendants or the insurance companies decide the value of the case. And um, the job of the plaintiff's lawyer is to get to that number with as little work as possible, because then that would be you get most for your hourly return. And that's certainly a valid way to evaluate it. Another way of looking at it is the value of the case is not determined by 
you know, the defense insurance industry, but determined by what it would take to make me go away. And that means I may have to put a lot more work into a case, but my return on every hour will be a lot higher because the value of the case was not determined by them. An example that I can't go into too much detail in, but recently I resolved a case where we worked it up. I mean, we spent $60,000 on it. We had God knows how many hours. We did 30 B6s. We enforced the rules so they had to produce emails to us. We really held their feet to the fire. There was a couple of other firms who were watching what we were doing and we're going to just piggyback on us saying, well, we will set the value of the case and then we're going to settle our cases without all that work. And what I have learned is they were offered 1% of what I settled my case for. So they're frustrated and because they're thinking once again that damages drive the damages and that's all it is. And if you uncover bad conduct, the responding institutions or defendants or insurance companies are going to be really nervous about what's going to happen. Whereas if it was just about, you know, the result, the damages, then the, the case would not have the strength that it otherwise would. And for those people who do a lot of car wreck stuff, and this is what I've learned, is you can have a basic soft tissue case, and it's a rear ender with low impact, and, you know, you're lucky to get eight, dollars $15,000 on it. If it's a drunk driver who's done the identical thing, particularly a drunk driver with a history, it's whatever the insurance policy limits are. It's because the um, conduct is egregious. Now, I'll hear people say, well, you know, there, there may not be coverage for that. And so, you know what? I've, I've litigated that many times in my career, and it's, it's been a threat by the defense. It's never really happened. And the bad conduct really drives it. There are so many reasons to use 30B6. In general, it's barely brought up at law school. I asked Mark how he discovered the rules importance and what he's doing to educate others. My law school, if it hit 60 seconds on 30B6, I would be surprised. And every time I get a new lawyer or a lawsuit working with me, I ask them to bring in their civil procedure book because I want to see how much was in it. Well, I've never seen a civil procedure book go more than two pages on 30B6. It's just, it's not even a 30,000 foot, it's a 200,000 foot. My book, second edition is like over 600 pages long because there's a lot of issues. And the way I got into it was really kind of funny. I've been teaching at the Advanced Deposition College for the American Association of Justice for maybe 25, 30 years. And, and I tried 30B6 a bunch of times in the first 20 years of my career and it never worked and everybody was unprepared. All I got was just frustrated and pissed and I didn't know what to do. But they asked me to teach. And I said, well, why are we wasting our time? It doesn't work. Well, it's got to be part of the program. And I did that crazy concept called legal research. And I started studying it. I said, my God, 
this thing can really work, but you have to figure out how to prove that they're cheating. So I spent, you know, the next decade practicing it and doing it and getting better and better as I got along and teaching more and more. And then Paul Scopter, who's was a great friend of mine, he's passed on now, but was a great litigation scholar, wrote a book with Philip Miller, who is equally great, called Advanced Depositions. And Paul said, you know, we need a sequel to the book. And 30B6 would be a great sequel. Will you write it? I said, well, sure. And, you know, I thought it'd be, you know, 80 pages and three, four months to do it. Well, four and a half years later and 500 pages later, the first edition got done. And then it really took off. And it, it, and lawyers all over the country started doing it. I'm not going to say there's a direct correlation, but I'd like to think there is, that the next thing we know, the defense industry is petitioning the Supreme Court and the Federal Rules Committee to water down the rule. I mean, basically taking everything I wrote about and trying to take it away. And so, you know, I testified before the Rules Committee with a lot of other people, and I was one of hundreds, if not thousands of people who wrote in on it. And the Supreme Court and the Rules Committee got it. They, they understood the gamesmanship and, and, you know, the mischief that goes on, and they have no part of it. And they made a slight tweak to make it much better, in my estimation. The pandemic came around. I said, well, I, we're not in court, so I spent another six months updating it and wrote two new chapters. Wonderful. 200 new cases and refined a lot of the things that I learned during the Federal Rules Committee hearings. And it's, it's a powerful tool, and it's actually for the benefit of both sides because it can cut the costs dramatically, efficiently get to the issues. But what a lot of people who oppose it don't like is it really cuts at and sometimes eliminates the gamesmanship that's going on. And right. a lot of lawyers think that that's what their job is. Yeah. So I can just imagine it. It's just the, the other side wanting to kick the can down the road. Just keep kicking it. Keep kicking it. Oh, they do. And then, then time runs out. You don't get the information. And one of the things I tell my friends who teach in the trial schools, which I've taught it also, but there's one th thing that's much more important than eloquence and great closing arguments and brilliance, and it's called evidence. If you don't have evidence, you're not going to, everything else is empty rhetoric. So, right. so 30B6 is all about getting the evidence so you can really go to town with those rhetorical skills that you've honed over the years. Absolutely. Mark, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show. So where can people pick up your books, not just your 30B6 book, but but all of sure. your books, and how can they get in touch with you? Okay, well, 30B6 is part of Trial Guides. And all you have to do is Google Trial Guides 30B6, and it'll pop up. Same thing with my book on nursing homes. That's a Trial Guides book. For the people who do day-to-day -day litigation, car wreck litigation, fall downs, plus people who do complex litigation, my book, Deposition Obstruction, Breaking Through, is available from AAJ Press. And that deals with how do you deal with lawyers who try to 
just get in the way of you asking legitimate questions and depositions. That's a book that goes to every kind of litigation there is. 30B6 goes to cases that deal with institutions and nursing home obviously goes to nursing home cases. Um, the way to get hold of me is my office number is 763-746-7800. And I'm at Mark, M-A-R-K, at Kaz, K-O-S, lawfirm.com. I'm always happy to help people with cases. You know, I talk to people all the time. Sometimes I join trial teams to help them with the 30B6 and discovery planning. I'm happy to help try the case too, but I, at this stage of my life, I don't have to have that. I'm much more interested in the, the chess moves because that really makes the difference when you get the evidence. And once you get the evidence, the chances of you trying the case go down pretty dramatically. Mark is a true expert when it comes to 30B6, and it was so great to pick his brain and learn all about the rule and how it can be effectively put to use. If you're interested in incorporating these depositions into your practice, check out Mark's book or his lectures on the subject. It's never a bad idea to have another tool in your tool belt. I'd like to thank Mark Kosieretsky from the Kosieretsky Smith Law Firm for sharing his story with us. And I hope you gained some valuable insights from the conversation. You've been listening to the Personal Injury Marketing Mastermind. I'm Chris Dreyer. If you like this episode, leave us a review. We'd love to hear from our listeners. I'll catch you on next week's PIM with another incredible guest and all the strategies you need to master personal injury marketing.